Hey everybody, this is Brian for another solo episode of Curiosity Continuum. This one is riffing on the long game of inspiration, which Josh and I recorded earlier. This is going to have been something where we did the solo and then did the together episode, but we did a little bit reverse just based on schedules and timing and constraints. So launch out onto the loop with me today as I kind of revisit the long game of inspiration today on Curiosity Continuum. All right, folks, so Curiosity Continuum is an industry-innovating, non-traditional company passionate about growing wisdom in the next generation. We're the essential bridge between the analog and digital worlds by building collaborative communities that unleash the power of adaptive expertise and innovation and to thrive in the 21st century. So you can follow us on uh, your favorite podcast apps, and you can visit us at curiositycontinuum.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm going to start this conversation with myself. And so it sounds funny, but um, when I think about the long game of inspiration, I want to use an image that I learned years ago, and it was the picture of a seed. And I think everybody understands what a seed is. A seed is something that if you planted it in the ground, if everything works right, it springs up and becomes something someday. And not every seed does that. But uh, when a seed is actually doing what it's supposed to do, the seed actually dies. And the seed becomes something different than what it was looking like back when it was a seed. Like nobody would look at a tree to go, oh, you know, that was an acorn once upon a time. You know that because you can actually observe an acorn and then over time say, I planted the acorn and here's the things that happened. But there's so much that's happening underneath the surface that you don't know all the things that are going on until it does. Some of that stuff, as we observe Scientifically, it's really fascinating. But some of those things, when it talks about the human spirit, you don't always know those things. It's like, what workings are happening in me right now that are the result of things that happened in the past? Sometimes those are positive, and sometimes those are negative. But when I think about the long game of inspiration for me and the things that kind of lodge themselves deep within me from early on in my life, there's a couple things that I for sure want to touch on. One of them for me is actually the influence of music and learning how to teach myself music here's why music to me i didn't put that love of music in me that was just there my mom said that i was listening to records when i was one years old and just sit in front of the record player for 30 minutes as like a one-year-old just fascinated and when the record kind of hit the end i would kind of get up and walk away and go do something else but it had my attention so what does that mean as far as uh letting myself be captured by music and then leaning into that and understanding it. You know, both my parents were tone deaf, and so they couldn't give me any real, like, direct, hey, go listen to this band or this musician or this music. But what they did was they gave me the encouragement and the situations and the support to be able to let me flourish in that gift. What that meant for me was that they would help support me in buying my first instruments, paying for music lessons, those are things that came with me. And those are the things that then also encouraged me to want to pursue it because I couldn't find it at home. It was not a convenient thing to be able to go find musical mentorship within my home. So I had to go outside the home to find it. And one of the first places I looked was a man named Doug Miller. Now, Doug Miller was the band director at my high school. And I was a choir guy. So didn't really have anything to do with band at the time. But ninth grade year, I approached him. And some of you have heard me tell this story. 
I said, would you teach me bass? He said, I normally don't because you're not a band student, but I can see that you want to learn. And I took that, and within about a month and a half, two months, he goes, I've taught you all that I can know you're on your own. And from that point on, then I started to lean into teaching tutors, like with books and things, but then I also sought it out. And one of those people where I found that instructor was a man named Pat Farron. Now, Pat Farron was a luthier in Minnesota. He also was a jazz guitarist on the Minneapolis jazz scene in the 70s. Funny story is that I actually met the bass player that played with him years later uh, at like a church I was attending at the time. And um, But Pat lived out and was a friend of one of my friends, John, who played guitar since he was five. He said, you need to meet Pat. Because at this point, I was an entrepreneuring young bass player who wanted to learn more, was getting more serious about getting my instruments in a state where they're really playable, really usable. And uh, what was nice about it is that I was able to connect with him, and he was very kind and gracious to me. In fact, he shared stuff with me that was more than just, hey, here's your instrument, thanks so much. He shared with me jazz theory, and that was critical in my development. What Pat taught me were things that there's no other person that would have been able to teach me that, especially my family. He had a working knowledge of jazz theory that not only was academic, but was real world in nature. And we spent many hours together in his living room. He had a Howard Roberts archtop guitar. Now, for those of you who don't know that, um, it was a very Howard Roberts was a jazz guitarist, and that particular instrument was not terribly common. And he got a specific sound out of it, and it's very much attuned for jazz. I had a chance to sit with him and talk about it and play bass and go back and forth. And those times really cemented my understanding of music so much that when I went off to college, and eventually I did a music major degree for just a year, but I had to do a music theory testing uh, slot to see where I slotted. You know, I knew absolutely crack diddly squat about classical theory. I have no idea. To this day, if you tell me a classical music theory term, I probably don't know what it is. But if you explain it to me in jazz theory terms, I understand it. Do you know that his tutor method and just him spending time with me teaching me that stuff to me to get it under my hands, get it in my ears, gave me working real world knowledge of how it works. That's really cool because he then gave me the platform to be able to go into something and know what I knew. And I had to go back and learn some terminology. But I test into a higher level theory because he gave me the knowledge. He was willing to invest his time in me. He never, uh, you know, made any percentages off of what I did as a bass player. He never had anything that was like, you know, this is my fees that I'm charging you to sit down. It was a man who was gracious with his knowledge and shared it to allow a young man to develop his own style and his own understanding of the instrument to be able to go forward in things that he never knew. And you know, that then begat another musical mentor, and uh, her name was Carol Kay. Now, Carol Kay is no stranger to anybody who's been in the music industry of any shape or form. She was born in 1935 and became a professional jazz guitarist at the age of 14 in 1949. I mean, you know, she's, she has uh, paid her musical dues more than uh, anybody else could. She also then became uh, a working session musician in L.A. when the jazz clubs began to dry up. And then she began to teach bass. Well, I'm sorry, she started to play bass on 
on sessions when one day the bass player didn't show up, she picked it up. And that instrument is really where she made such a tremendous contribution to the music world, playing on all the Beach Boys stuff, playing Nancy Sinatra, playing with Ray Charles, playing with Joe Cocker. It's, it's embarrassing to almost think about how many things she's played on. And I had the privilege to learn from her when I was living with a Hollywood stuntman back in the early 2000s. This is before there was major internet sites and different things to figure it out, and I got instructions from my instructor from Belmont University. Remember, I was able to get in because I learned enough stuff before to then go learn from Carol. Now, Carol has such a wealth of knowledge that uh, she has written many, many tutors, and I recommend you check her out. Her website's still active at carolk.com, K-A-Y-E. She... At that point in my life, I had two lessons with her from my short time in California. She taught me chordal theory. Now, for those of you who don't know the difference, um, and this is really what it's going to mean, is that she taught me a deeper application of how these uh, things I'd been learning actually applied. And you want to go back even further about how this thing worked. She was playing in L.A. in the jazz scene in the 50s, uh, in bebop and all those other kinds of things. So this woman knew her stuff. And she also knew how to practically apply it in the real world. Do you know that those two lessons set me up for success later? Those things unlocked my ears in ways that I couldn't understand some styles of music. Sometimes like, what the heck are they doing? And the lessons that she taught me helped me to understand what I was hearing. And you know, uh, those skills translated to not only me being able to play different styles at a better level. I'll never probably be a, a jazz musician at my core, but I appreciate the style and I appreciate what goes into it. But you know what that did? It unlocked my ears and so that I would go into any musical situation and I could just drop in and start playing. And I've had very complimentary things said to me by other musicians over the years, say, man, you have really good ears. You can pick up and go. And I'm grateful for their feedback. But I also want to point to Carol, whose tutorship in that particular, tutorship isn't the word maybe, but she unlocked things that I couldn't have ever done. And you know what? That's 20-plus years now on the outworking, and I'm still reaping the benefits from it. You don't know always necessarily how that will begin to mature and change over time. What I can tell you, though, are there are things like that that if you look back to say, you know, if that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened, and it wouldn't have unlocked this thing or that thing. And everybody's got their story about what actually is good in their experience and what's bad what they learn say i'll never be like that i'll never do this but there's a lineage that follows when you talk about the long game of inspiration and those things are still reaping fruit to this day so if you're hearing this and you can go back and thank some people go back and thank them tell them what their words meant likely they're not going to be famous people maybe they are but for the ones that were the quiet contributors the ones that weren't looking to become famous or known for any particular thing that they were doing. Your words mean something. could be professional. It could be personal. And I'll be honest, I had a lot of angst in the beginning sharing those feelings because I felt like they would perceive me as kind of like, you know, kissing their butt or um, wanting something from them. But I just came with a real heart of thanks. I had to get over myself to do that because people who really love to give and are gracious with their time and their talent and the treasures that they have will be blessed by what you have to say. And it's only going to happen if you open your mouth and you trace it back to say, I want to say thank you for what you've done. 
So consider that, please, as we kind of put the comma here in, in my own solo episode for Long Game of Inspiration. Till next time, this is Brian for Curiosity Continuum. <laughs>